Hi, everyone. This is Laura, and welcome back to Let's Chat Healthcare. Hi, Arja. Thanks for coming on the Let's Chat Healthcare podcast this morning. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. I am really excited to have you on because um, just after we talked earlier, I did a little bit, bit more research on who you are and what you do. And I think it's just really amazing what you're doing for raising awareness for MS and just like living with a chronic condition in general. And um, I haven't listened to it yet, but I'm so excited to listen to the your podcast on the litigation about using fatigue as a reason to use your insurance. I just think it's really great how specific and how applicable it is. Like, I think that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I think when we're talking about chronic illness, and of course, I have multiple sclerosis or MS, fatigue is one of those things that everybody knows what it feels like to feel mm-hmm. tired, but mm-hmm. medical grade fatigue is not something that's necessarily brought on by overexerting yourself and it's not relieved by rest. And so it's a different beast altogether. And it really is hard for people to understand because, you know, every, everyone's tired all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think fatigue, some people, it's a word that's tossed around a lot, but like actually having the medical grade fatigue is like, it can be really limiting sometimes. I have seen it in some of my other patients. So yeah, I think that's really awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on and joining me. Uh, Maybe we can start by you giving us a little more information about yourself. Uh, What do you want to know? Medical stuff? Mm. Uh, My favorite drink sandwich (laughs) (laughs) let's do your favorite drink and also just a little bit about your medical journey maybe like the key points I feel like I'm supposed to say green tea but my favorite drink is really champagne Um, (laughs) I was diagnosed with MS when I was 23 so Mm. a million years ago And uh, yeah, it's been life changing. There's a lot to unpack with that diagnosis. If any of your listeners don't know what MS is, it is the most common um, neurological disabling disease of young adults. So it typically strikes between the ages of 20 and 40. There's no cure. It um, affects your central nervous system. So basically, whatever can go wrong, the computer of your body um, may go wrong. It affects everyone differently. My presenting symptoms at diagnosis were vision loss and hearing loss. Um, Since then, I've had difficulty with mobility, spasticity, bladder and bowel issues, cognitive issues. It really is an all-encompassing beast of a disease. I do think that MS uh, is sometimes hard to define because the symptoms present so differently. Like you're saying, I have one friend who has it and she like she has no symptoms besides like sometimes she'll feel tingling in her fingers and she had shoulder pain. So she ended up actually getting like some imaging that helped like with the diagnosis, but she has it it's very present on her but no symptoms and then my other friend who is pretty symptomatic and I just think that sometimes makes it hard to define and hard to explain to someone I don't know if you ever feel like that 
uh, all the time. It's why I started a <laughs> blog. I think the the nature of the illness is that many of the symptoms can be invisible. So mm. a lot of people may know somebody with MS and they aren't necessarily aware of how it is impacting them. But another hallmark of the illness early on especially is this relapsing remitting nature. So Mm -hmm. Um, people with MS will have these attacks or exacerbations when symptoms will flare up and then they may have a period of recovery. And so, uh, and then you may have another relapse and it's sort of like you don't always return to baseline. Even if you have some recovery, there can be a slow accumulation Mm. of of damage. And that was my illness in the early stages. Now I'm in the secondary progressive stage where I I don't have the these big dramatic attacks regularly. Mm-hmm. It's just more a slow accumulation of disability. But mm-hmm. you know, it's um it is a progressive illness. So it's it's a moving target, which I think causes a lot of anxiety for people with mm-hmm. MS also. And another thing that I'm thinking related to that is I bet that that often makes it hard sometimes to treat because the symptoms are so different because it's very unexpected because you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. I feel like, and also hard to explain not only to your friends, like I was saying, but maybe to like a healthcare provider. Well, there are a number of different ways to treat the disease. So there are new therapies that are serious big guns kinds of drugs, disease-modifying therapies that treat the underlying disease. And mm-hmm. then, of course, you you need to look at other approaches to treat the symptoms. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, that's you can you can be seeing a team of doctors to address a whole bunch of, of different things. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah, kind of like sense. a full-time job. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I would love to talk about some of your experiences in healthcare. Um, And I know that's kind of a broad question, but maybe just a few that you've had that like have really stuck out to you and what that experience was like for you. And it could be in uh, whether it went well or it was more difficult. Sure. Well, what? let's start with positives, I guess. Yeah, yeah. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we all complain about healthcare everywhere mm-hmm. so yeah. much, but I think I very much appreciate the the medical personnel that have helped me weather this over the years. So I have a great mm-hmm. neurologist now. The neurologist who diagnosed me and treated me for the first many years of my MS was also a very compassionate, intelligent, um, kind doctor. Yeah. And I I have an amazing physiatrist. I think um, we could, you could do a whole episode on physiatry. If you have MS, look up physiatry and know I'm not mispronouncing psychiatry. (laughs) Uh, Physiatrists are great for helping you manage your, your symptoms. So if you think of the neurologist as treating the underlying disease, the facade, like the, the neurologist helps you manage the disease and the physiatrist helps you live with it. I'm not articulating mm, that as well. Like as manage the like. symptoms. <laughs> yeah. No, that that um, was great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and anytime I get a nurse who 
is really good at taking blood and can do it in one shot, mm. that's always a win for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I think that um, I think that it's hard because with IVs, it's either it can be a hit or miss. Like on the same patient too, it's like either it works or it doesn't work. And sometimes when it doesn't work, it takes a while. I think I'm usually I'm always really patient. With blood draws, like I'm pretty tough. The only time I do get frustrated is if I tell the nurse that what looks like a juicy vein is not, not a juicy like, vein. No, no, it's a lie <laughs> teller. Um, and I've had a few that are, you know, they promise me that they can get it. And I'm like, you're not going to get it. Like I just, I'm so scarred <laughs> um, from having so many IVs and, mm. and blood draws that I know my veins. So that's, you know. If a patient mm-hmm. tells you, uh, you, you see, you have to believe them sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> but that's awesome that you've had such a great experience with and with the neurologist. And I think it's great that you feel like he or he or she was compassionate towards you because I think that sometimes you can have a great neurologist, but not necessarily have a compassionate one like those are not always come together so <laughs> I mean yeah. not not towards neurologists but just in general I think sometimes you can have a great doctor but they don't always have the best bedside manner but I think it's awesome that you got both I yeah I don't think it's an accident I think mm-hmm. I've I've definitely had less than perfect situations also mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. I think uh it can be difficult to seek out a specialist that you jive with when sometimes you feel you kind of have to take what you can get. And also, you know, all of this care is time sensitive. You don't want to be waiting for a referral, putting care off for months and months. But I do think it's important to look elsewhere. I did have temporarily a doctor once who, uh, when I was telling him about a symptom I was experiencing – looked to my husband and asked him if it were true, like asked my husband to verify that I was experiencing that symptom. Mm. So, you know, it's, they're not all positive experiences. I think I, I prefer to focus on the positive, but I think it's really important if you feel like you're being um, not taken seriously or gaslit to try and and find another doctor. It's Mm -hmm. especially with, Chronic illness or invisible illness, I think women are not always as often taken mm. as yeah, – I know it can take a long time for a lot of people to get an MS diagnosis. Mine came quickly because I presented with textbook symptoms of mm. optic vision loss. But when people present with things like fatigue or sensory symptoms, num- numbness, tingling, it can be – easy to to be dismissed Mm. yeah I see what you're saying and I think that sometimes it's hard to have that confidence as a patient um to say no this is something else or no I'm feeling more or no like I need to advocate more for myself I think that's a really big step for a patient to take because I mean you're you're not you but someone is a patient the doctor tells them, hey, you're fine. That doctor is the one in the field. That doctor is the one telling you you're fine. It's really hard to have the confidence to seek out a second opinion. And I think I sometimes totally... there's a lot of 
judgment too in healthcare in the healthcare system when someone's seeking out a second opinion. And sure. I think that that can be that's really that's a big step for a patient to take to have that confidence. I mean, we all kind of know it's our right to ask for a second opinion, but how do we yeah. actually do that? Exactly. So did you do it or oh no, you said that you got an initial well, diagnosis. I mean, yeah, there I there have been bumps along the road. I mean, my initial diagnosis, I first went to a family doctor mm-hmm. um, and was told that I was having migraines and mm-hmm. that I needed that I was stressed and that I needed to take time off work. And I kind of accepted I mean, that, that. makes sense because like yeah. those are similar symptoms for migraines. Sure. But, you know, two weeks later, I was noticing that like consi- like the pain in my eyes was unbelievable. It wasn't resolved with any over-the-counter medication. And I think he had prescribed me naproxen and that it didn't touch it. But I was losing vision and losing hearing and I just knew it wasn't right. I didn't mm. think it was something as serious as multiple sclerosis. I actually thought like I must have an infection. I need antibiotics. But I didn't go back to that doctor. I went to the emergency room because, um, I mean, I didn't know what else to do. I wasn't going to see the same doctor. And mm-hmm. But the emergency room physician, he recognized the vision loss as a potential symptom of multiple sclerosis right away. I was diagnosed very quickly after that. Mm. I see. And how how did you transition into... Before that, were you very involved in the healthcare system before you got your diagnosis? No, like I didn't even, I almost didn't have insurance because I was 23 and I thought I only need birth control. I don't want to <laughs> pay for insurance, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, and not think anything could happen to me ever at that age. So yeah, you know, yeah. it was not dude, trial by fire, really. <laughs> so how did you make that transition into the healthcare field. Like, so you have your diagnosis. What came next? Uh, I, I, I would say a year of grief and freaking out mm. and panic, you know, tr- trying to be 23 and figuring out who I wanted to date and what kind of job I wanted to do. And you know, mm. like suddenly I had to think about giving myself needles and side effects and am I going to be able to walk and just, oh my God, it was not a year that I would wish on anyone or that I would oh. want to live over again. It was really hard. Mm. And then how, what what helped you move on from that? What, what helped you more work with it instead of have being, more being scared of it? It sounds like you were a little scared of it. Maybe like a little scared is a total underestimation. Okay. <laughs> I was like wigging out. Um, yeah, I think the thing with MS is that even 20 years later, it's still mm-hmm. a moving target. And so it's not a stationary diagnosis. You mm-hmm. don't sort of get all your symptoms handed to you all at once. Mm-hmm. And so I think that every time you develop a new s- symptoms, like vision loss, that's one disease. Um, bladder problem, that's another disease. You know, mm. not being able to walk without a cane or a walker, it's like that's another disease. It's like mm. you're constantly having these separate conditions heaped on you. And I feel like when I was first diagnosed, 
And even now, the instinct is to want to encourage people to fight and to overcome and to not give up. I remember being at a talk with a doctor who said the best, the patients who did the best were the ones who accepted their diagnosis. And I was Mm. outraged. I was like, you know what he's talking about? Like, how could you accept this? That's giving up all this. Like, I didn't understand. Mm. I understand now that like, I can't fight with my body. I can't be angry with my body. I need to learn to live with this terrible roommate that is my (laughs) disease. And so, um, yeah, it's about figuring out the workarounds and the accommodations that I need and trying Mm -hmm. to make peace rather than feeling like I'm constantly at war. And that doesn't mean, you know, that I don't do all those like quote unquote fighting type things that you would think of, like looking after my diet or my exercise or my physio or getting enough sleep. Like you still do have to do all those things. But I think constantly putting yourself in this position of wishing that, you know, things were were different mm-hmm. or that it would go away is, is is not, for me anyway, it's not a really healthy state of mind. Yeah. And like we we're saying, you're always learning with MS and you're always having, I feel like you're always having to listen to your body about what it needs and what's going to happen next. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's like, but you're more in touch with how, how to communicate with your body than a lot of us. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's, it's still hard. It's still like you have a good energy day. You try to do all the mm-hmm. things and then you pay it back later. So mm-hmm. Now we're all learning as we go. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, so you mentioned a little earlier about a time that you kind of felt like someone, like one of your healthcare providers, overlooked you. Can we maybe talk more in depth about an like the same one or another experience that you had where it just it just didn't click with you and maybe the healthcare provider or whoever the healthcare system, anyone in the healthcare system? Yeah. You know, it's really interesting because I we can talk a lot about how patients and physicians and nurses, the whole healthcare team can communicate better to understand each other. I do think mm-hmm. that there is this broader movement for the medical community to start seeing patients as partners. And I mm-hmm. think everyone wins when that happens because mm-hmm. if, if the patient feels empowered to um, look after their own care or feels like an active participant in their care or understands why they need to do or not do something. I think everybody wins in that situation. I think you're in the United States. I'm in Canada. I think probably everywhere in the world, there is some version of some kind of healthcare crisis. And so I recognize that um, in the field of MS, but probably basically everything, we are grossly under-resourced. My neurologist is amazing, but she has a thousand patients. And so um, I think there is, we all need to have patience with each other and to understand that we're on the same team mm-hmm. and we all have the same mm-hmm. goals. But I think it's really the onus is on our governments and our our politicians to 
invest more heavily into healthcare so that we are not as under-resourced as we Mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate what you said about the healthcare provider and the patient coming together. And it's kind of like what we talked about earlier, having that confidence. But I do think it is an interesting balance to learn because the patient knows their body, they are feeling it, but the healthcare professional is it. The healthcare, profession. the healthcare provider is the specialist in the field. So I do think that's a really interesting dynamic to figure out how to fit together to make the best situation. And I think that, I don't know, I think it's just a really interesting dynamic because you have one person that's feeling it, but isn't necessarily trained in it. And then you have someone who's trained in it, but isn't necessarily feeling it. And how do you come together to have that perfect fit? Like, how does that work for you? you I know. think it's about mutual respect. So mm, if I have yeah. a doctor that I feel is taking me seriously, I'm going to be more inclined mm. to to hear what they have to say. So it's about, you know, I don't want to dismiss the physician, and but I don't want to be dismissed by the physician either. I think there needs to be an understanding on both sides that, you know, I have information that you don't have and you have information that I don't have and how can we make this work together? Yeah, yeah. You know, something I'm thinking from the healthcare provider side is like, for example, in the emergency room, I would say a vast majority, like a high percentage of our patients that come in are not diagnosed with something serious and do not necessarily have something serious going on with them. So I do think it it definitely takes a it definitely is something that you need to learn how to recognize hey this one is a serious one and even if it the symptoms are not obvious like you were saying having eye pain or i forgot what your first symptoms are or tingling what were your first no, symptoms again? vision loss with eye pain and hearing yeah. loss like and those are like, serious symptoms right like yeah very serious like but that. some But I feel like if I saw you in the emergency room, my first thought might be migraine because that's like the most common thing that people come in with. So I think it's really interesting to be able to pick those serious ones out. And obviously, like that's what we're trained to do. But I think that sometimes maybe there's fatigue because the majority of your patients you see are not serious. So So, being able to. I would yeah. love to see two things about that. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, really go ahead. Go ahead. Passionate about this. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the first thing is that is again recognizing that the reason why a lot of people are going to ERs is because they don't have a family doctor, mm-hmm. right? They don't have mm-hmm. the appropriate resources to to exactly what you were saying. <laughs> that's you know, it's a bit about finding that. The, like better support and funding. So it's not mm-hmm. necessarily the patient's fault that they're no, there. No, no, not, not at you all. Know? Um, but I am curious to know, this is something I've wondered a lot, is as a nurse and in this field, I can imagine your frustration of, of like working those long shifts and seeing people who don't necessarily need to be there, but maybe reminding mm-hmm. yourself of like, they don't have anywhere else to go. But yeah. How do you keep yourself from suffering from compassion fatigue? Or yeah. do you do you just give into it every now and then? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, real quick, I think 
that the people that don't come in, they don't always, the people that come in that don't necessarily need to be there, they not only don't have the resources of like a primary doctor, but I think they also don't have the resources of education because maybe they, we have a clinic in the hospital. We have one, but they don't necessarily know. So I think a huge part of it is education too. Um, and that's, yes. that's a really great point because also one thing to consider when we talk about patients as partners is the physician or the healthcare team's ability to recognize who yeah. is capable of managing mm-hmm. their own care and to what degree. Yeah. And also like where do we expect them to get that education is something that I always think about. Like what where do I expect this mom to know that her fever isn't an emergency? Like the right. internet, but the internet has so much on, like you're not going to be able to tell. So yeah, it's interesting. But back to your compassion fatigue. I think that's a really good question. And I think, I do think that what you mentioned is a huge reason for the shortage in healthcare right now. I think it definitely plays into it. Like um, for me, burnt out, right? Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. And during, just during the pandemic and I think people just got really burnt out and left the bedside. Um, but if we paid our healthcare professionals more and if we mm-hmm. staffed them more and mm-hmm. made the education process more, you wouldn't have to work those 12-hour shifts. You could, you know. Yeah. I think that for me, okay, personally, as a nurse, I like working the 12-hour shifts because you only work three days a week. Wow. And okay. It's I don't a know really, yeah. It's, it's a really great schedule. Um, oh, I did. We had a travel nurse from Canada, and she, she did work 12s. But um, I – so I like the 12-hour shifts. And – for me, okay, so I, for me personally, I'm blessed to say that it's not about the money for me. And I know that that sounds so cliche, but truly, if I got paid more, I don't think it would make as much of a difference as the staffing. Like, I would rather have them pay someone else to come work with me because when you're in such a stressful situation and it's, Every day you're going in, you're short-staffed, you have really sick patients, you don't have the resources you need. I'd rather have them, instead of paying me more, I'd rather have them pay for more resources so I enjoy coming to work, you know? So I, yeah. so I don't feel stressed every time I'm at work. I'd rather, and I do, there have been times when we've been fully staffed and it's great. And I definitely think that it would prevent the burnout, but obviously like that's an obvious one, but for me, it's mostly about the resources. It's mostly about, and another thing with nursing is a lot of nurses are leaving the bedside to go to advanced practice. Bedside nursing um, is not necessarily something that's sustainable to do forever as a career, just because it's so much, it's so overwhelming. And we, but the problem is we need those nurses. We need those nurses that have had 40 years of bedside experience. We need those nurses that know what they're doing when a critical patient comes in. And I think that's really hard because a lot of people are going on to advanced practice. It's better pay. It's a better work environment. It's a better, better hours. So what do we do to keep people at the bedside? I don't know. It's a question. It's, it's an interesting question, I think, because there's nothing wrong with going to furthering your education, doing something else that you want to do, but how do we also have enough people that stay bedside? And it's almost, 
it's almost looked down upon. I don't know. It's hard to explain, but sometimes when I say like, oh, I don't want to go get my NP or I don't want to go do this, sometimes I do feel like, like, okay, uh, like, are you going to do this forever? Because that's not sustainable. So like what we need to make it sustainable for people to do it for a long time. I don't know. That was a really long answer to your question, but <laughs> I had a lot to say. I think there's a, there's a lot that needs to be fixed. You yeah. know, I think that's the that's the yeah. frustration from the people who require care and the people mm-hmm. who are giving it. And I think, you know, we're all going to need some level of care at some point. We've got aging populations and I think mm-hmm. It behooves us to invest more in in strengthening our healthcare system at all mm-hmm. levels, so that it's and, you know, a job that people want to do. My mom was a nurse, and I grew up being told, "Don't go into nursing." Yeah, yeah. My I, sister says that anyone who's a nurse that's graduating with her right now, she's like, she's like, you. Everyone knows that you don't want to be a nurse. Like it's <laughs> everyone knows like it's not a place you want to be, but. I honestly, truly 100% enjoy it. And I love doing it. I love doing IVs. I love because nurses are the ones that are at the bedside in those critical situations, putting in the IVs, drawing the blood, doing the compressions like and like that's that's the job that I really love. But like, I don't know, how do we make that sustainable? And I know it's like a worldwide problem, honestly. Like I look up nursing on Reddit in different countries and <laughs> it, Reddit is a very good source of research, <laughs> I think. <laughs> but um, even when I look up nursing in other countries, it's all the same, underpaid, understaffed. Like, yeah, yeah I don't know what the solution is. in a crisis. I, the solution is to prioritize yeah. investing in it, right? I mean, yeah. I don't know, make the education process affordable and I incentivize people to go into the field because I think people who want to go into healthcare are, you know, they, especially nursing, these are the the people with the biggest hearts, the people who are the most compassionate and we need to support them better. (laughs) The question I think is how do we do that? Um, because I think during the pandemic, a lot of awareness was raised for the role of the nurse. But I also think that now that I'm thinking about it, like a lot of people I talk to from like younger generations, they're like, oh, like, I don't want to be a nurse like the pandemic, like their job sucks. <laughs> like, So I wonder yeah. if it caused a little bit of that, too. I, isn't it kind of true? At, like nobody wants to work now. Like isn't everyone quitting their yeah. job and following their trying passion? to work from home? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think that it's a it's a big question, and I'm very interested to see how it's fixed because I think that it it has to be fixed. It's the shortage. I think is impacting healthcare to a point where it's eventually, like something is going to have to change. Like. There's such long wait times in ERs. There's such a shortage right now. Like, I don't know. I think something is going to happen. Yeah, I think the I think we're going to be paying the costs of this for years to come. So Mm. I know for myself personally that specialist appointments to treat symptoms um, that like months out, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I, it's not just me, you know, it's, um, yeah, I have no, a friend who's everyone. a dermatologist who said that she's diagnosing 
handfuls of skin cancer every day from people who weren't seen. Oh my God, I haven't been to the dentist since the pandemic. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to be. Um, and yeah, also, uh, that's just like a ripple effect because then that causes more people to come to the emergency room. I mean, I get so many people every night that are like, I'm here because I can't get appointment for six months and I'm worried about this thing with my kid. And like, I get why they're in the emergency room. Like you have to wait six months. Like that's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. But I think this, like, there must be something in, in medicine where you have to distance yourself Mm -hmm. or how you, how with, again, with back to the compassion fatigue or how can you stay mentally healthy yourself if you're feeling so much of everyone else's suffering all the time. And I think it is a hard balance because you don't want to distance yourself too much where you become cold. But for me, I think we've all probably seen it. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I think that it's important to recognize, like we were saying, the reason, like someone comes into the emergency room who doesn't want to be there, who doesn't necessarily have to be there. They they just have a fever. Their their kid probably has a virus. A lot of people might look at that like, hey, why are they there? They're clogging up the system. What are they doing? I think for me, what prevents the burnout is looking at it like the system is not working for them. They were not educated to know that they don't have to wait eight hours in the emergency room. They don't have to miss work. They don't have to come in and pay the copay. Like the system is not working for them. So I think that's what helps me is I think it's important to not, and I know that this sounds kind of harsh, but to not blame the patient because if this mom is there, she's concerned about, and I'm just speaking from a pediatric side, if this mom is concerned about her kid, like, that's awesome. Like, I'm glad that she is bringing her kids somewhere if she is concerned and she hasn't had the resources to know that she doesn't need to be there. She hasn't had the resources to be able to get to an appointment. So I think that's what helps me prevent burnout is just not blaming the patient, but blaming the system. <laughs> but I have yeah. burnout from the system. <laughs> I think I mean, it's normal. You're human, right? Yeah. yeah, we're all feeling a bit worn down now. And all, and even as a patient, you know, I am trying to be patient and compassionate and recognize that it's not the fault of, of whatever place I'm trying to get an appointment at that I have to book my MRI at three o'clock in the morning you know, oh and I gosh. like, yeah, it's, um, I can't get frustrated with the person that is not being, not allowing me to have a more reasonable time. But, you know, yeah. it, there's also, um, it's a limit to the patience you can have as somebody who isn't well with how much you have to, put up with and, Mm -hmm. you know, and just accept that you could be doing a little bit better than you maybe are if you were getting more efficient and better care. Yeah, that's really hard. I can't imagine how, how, how difficult that is to know that or to feel that. Yeah, we're kind of in a mess, but I think these are problems that existed before the pandemic and now are just worse. And I think it's really great that we're out here talking about this. And I think that if you aren't necessarily involved in healthcare, you might not know what's going on. But I think it's really great to just be aware of this because like you were saying, I mean, 
I'm not to be fatalistic, but everyone gets involved in the healthcare system eventually. And whether it's a family member, whether it's yourself. And I think that um, it's important that we talk about these things and just get it out there that this is what's going on. And yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, yeah. You listen, if we want to end on a positive note, I will yes, say I would that love to. Like, I don't know what you've noticed, but in the last few years, I mean, I've sort of been public and uh, a patient advocate since 2015, but I've definitely noticed a steady, steady increase of uh, pharmaceuticals and physicians mm-hmm. really wanting to engage with and hear from patients in a meaningful way. And so I do think there is an attitude change of, you know, teamwork, patients as partners, that whole ideology that's coming in with maybe the a younger generation of healthcare mm. workers. And so I think I do feel like the people that are in it, we are all on the same team. We just need yeah, yeah. To be like better, uh, we need to be better resourced. And I guess that that happened. We had to put pressure on our our governments to make that. And happen. I think it's. Imp- I think that's really key. What you said right there to recognize that we're all on the same team. We all have the same goal. Um, we just have something fighting against us. Yes, <laughs> every yes. step of the way. Totally. <laughs> I think it's funny because most of my episodes were like, we want to end on a positive note, <laughs> because it always ends up in some type of. I don't know, passionate about healthcare rant about something that's going on, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, that's like how we keep going, right? Is yeah, like, yeah. That, the stories we have to tell ourselves. I feel like every time I talk to my friends, it, if it ever goes into healthcare, it's like, it's like I could keep going and keep going and keep going and I just need to like stop myself sometimes. <laughs> Well, that's it, right? It's like you, it's, you control the things that you can and – yeah, you know, it does feel like insurmountable, some of the obstacles that we can't influence, but we do yeah. what we can in our own little bubbles and worlds. And yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's all we can do. And encourage people to chat healthcare. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, awesome. and this Thanks. is like oh, the okay. thing about social media. It's like totally um, leveled the playing field. Of yeah. And made everything so heard. accessible. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I think it's great. And even even like what you're doing is getting out there and raising awareness for MS and chronic conditions and what it's like to live with it and things that could be going better. And just even like putting out these episodes um, of informational, like you're out there advocating for everyone else. And I think that's awesome. (laughs) Thank you. It's totally selfish. I'm just trying to make the world better for me. Same here. I'm just trying to encourage people to chat healthcare so the healthcare system can improve. <laughs> That's like that is a, that is good work you are doing. A very very massive goal I've set out for myself. <laughs> yep. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. I had a really great time chatting with you, and it was really great to just talk. I think it's really great to talk as people that are involved in the healthcare system outside of the healthcare system to just be able to like have a great, honest and like open conversation about what it's really like. So thank you so much. My pleasure. It was, it was great to be here and I totally agree, right? It's you're we're not having this conversation as you're trying to find a rogue vein. Or I'm missing your IVs. <laughs> right. <laughs>
Thanks for listening. I really enjoyed having Ardra on and thank you again to her for coming on and sharing with us her thoughts about healthcare and her experience in healthcare. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe to be notified when new episodes are released and find us on social media at Let's Chat Healthcare. This is Laura and I'll see you next time on the Let's Chat Healthcare podcast.